Hello and welcome to the MarTech Alliance Marketing Technology Book Club. I'm your host, Carlos Doughty, and the founder of the MarTech Alliance. You can check us out at martechalliance.com. Today I'm chatting with Eric Rees about his fantastic book, The Startup Way. Hi Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Um, Eric, for the one or two people possibly not familiar with yourself, but maybe haven't <laughs> read either of your books, um, could you please give us a little bit of background about yourself? Sure. So uh, I grew up here in California. I was one of those kids who was programming computers in their parents' basement. One of the happiest days of my childhood was when I found out you could get paid to be a programmer, like <laughs> a career you could have. I didn't know that. I just I did it for fun. And I got into entrepreneurship during the dot-com bubble. I was a computer science major in college, right when the bubble was happening. And found out the hard way that entrepreneurship doesn't work the way it's supposed to in the movies. And uh, as a result, wound up moving out to Silicon Valley to apprentice myself to some of the best entrepreneurs I could find. Uh, and then they turned out to get just exactly the same results I was getting in my dorm room, that is to say, not, not very good ones. And I got to learn firsthand that the myth of Silicon Valley and the way that we did things here also had some flaws. And so that was the kind of the start of my entrepreneurship career with a lot of failure and frustration that ultimately led me to, uh, you know, learning a new approach, trying a new approach, uh, experimenting with some new ideas that ultimately came together and became uh, what's now called the Lean Startup. Thank you. So if we jump in on the book, um, and I appreciate this can be tough, would you mind trying to summarize the entire fantastic book in just one short tweet? <laughs> sure, no problem. It only took me 400 pages to do it. Exactly. So, sure so it it 286 characters were allowed now, 286. Yeah, no, let's see. Uh, that, that is, uh, first, you know, verbose is more my style. Let me see what I can do. I guess what I would say is the startup way is about how to create a modern company, a truly modern company by harnessing the power of entrepreneurship for every employee. Nice. How about that? That's good. That's good. Yeah. Don't need to read the whole book now, right? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, the, the devil is in the details. So I feel like it's exactly. pretty safe to give that out. Yeah. So, um, so, okay. So not everybody has an Eric Rees on site. So for companies trying to navigate in this space on their own, besides reading the book, um, not just going off the tweet, where do they start? So I would say that there's a remarkable similarity between companies that are going through uh, hyper growth, that is finding product market fit for the first time and, and rapidly scaling up as kind of the classic you know, tech startup does, and companies that maybe have a legacy culture and management system that are eager to transform, or want to do a digital transformation, become a 21st century company. Uh, go from having a short-term outlook to really a long-term strategy, long-term culture and philosophy. Those, those two things are remarkably similar. So the first step always is to set that vision of what do we want, what kind of company do we really want to be? And everyone pays lip service to ideas like long-term, to innovation, you know, to uh, creativity and discipline. I mean, there's just a lot of those things are, are buzzwords. Certainly the idea of acting like a startup you know, being more Silicon Valley centric is a hot, buzzy idea lately. So, you know, you have to cut through all that nonsense and really ask yourself, what kind of company do I want to be? What is the experience of being an employee going to be like? 
if someone wants to to do something innovative, are they going to have to quit, you know, go raise venture capital and start their own company, or could they do it right here within the four walls? And this is a hard question for for startup founders and for seasoned executives alike, because all of us are operating in a paradigm of a more 20th century management style that is very command and control, very top down, and frankly uh, suppresses innovation by design. So the first step is to set that that vision, and then obviously, like I said before, the, the devil's in the details. Like how you get from here to there, that's the bulk of what the book is about. Definitely, definitely. Um, one of the key things that jumped out from the book for me was you talked about actually starting with somebody internally, starting with somebody already on staff to be that real change agent, that person that drives entrepreneurial nature of the business. Um, but how do you find that person? Is, is, it, is it the person that you're ready to fire? I mean, you talked also about yeah, you're yeah. more likely to get sacked than you are um, to be to be given the autonomy if you've got if you're too entrepreneurial is that is that is that the telltale sign of the right person uh i wouldn't say it's the only sign but it is very common i mean the answer to this question depends a lot on the level of authority you already have in the organization so so yeah if we're talking about the ceo wanting to lead this transformation personally mm -hmm. uh you know that's about finding the right executive to put in charge uh if you're you know a division leader uh, it's about you know who's on your Who's on your you know, direct staff who you can turn to and say, I want you to be focused on you know, what the future of this division is going to be and have operating responsibilities to, to practice continuous innovation. But no matter how big your team is, including if you're just a tiny little team or you, you, know, you're, you work on the line of, some, uh, of, of a big company or you have a, you know, you're a P&L leader with a few teams, no matter who you are, you can always be asking this question. Who's responsible for commercializing new ideas, for finding new breakthroughs, truth, for thinking about the future of whatever it is that we do? Who's in charge of making sure that we're customer-centric, experimental, uh, and rigorous in our approach when we encounter unexpected turbulence or sources of uncertainty? That's a, that's a legit question at every level of the organization and at every age of organization, whether you're you know, five months old, five years old, or 100 years old. Uh, those, are, uh, those are totally fair questions. What's interesting now, and you know, as opposed to when I first started writing about Lean Startup, there is now a terrific, you know, almost a whole industry of consultants and vendors who you can uh, who can help you with this. You know, um, Bionic has an entire they call a growth operating system that they come and install in Fortune 500 companies. Uh, you know, through the Lean Startup Conference, we do education, training, workshops. You know, for for companies of a lot of different sizes. Uh, there's, there's moves the needle. A number of the cons traditional consulting companies, you know, uh, both IDEO, McKinsey, uh, BCG have all uh, adopted some elements of this into their consulting practice. Pivotal, if you want something on the IT side, has a, has a lead startup practice. So there's there's a lot of resources that you can draw on from if you want to install these ideas. But I still think even given all those resources that are available, the most important thing is to start internally with an internal change agent somebody who you you know you trust to think outside the box and as, as you say probably this is going to already be a person that drives you crazy <laughs> so so start there with the, with the roster of folks that you know that, that i'm sorry not that they're they're not mismanaging the company they're not bad people they're people who there's certain people that just they insist on doing what's right for the customer no matter what mm -hmm. so even if you tell them our company po procedure or policy is to you know do things xyz 
they will frequently violate those policies because they're just not what's right to get the job done. And, you know, you've got to find people like that. Great. Thank you. Okay. Um, one of the other things we really want to chat to you on was in your experience, what do you think are the biggest roadblocks companies face when they're trying to in implement the startup way methodology and how should they go about combating these? I would say the biggest roadblock is mental. So, you know, we talk a lot about culture, management systems, incentives, accountability, and, you know, that's, those are all really important elements to transformation. And I think the reason why this conversation can be very confusing is that uh, structural elements of a company have a cause and effect relationship with cultural attributes of the company. So let me be more concrete about what I mean. Uh, I was once working with a team that you know, was a, a unholy hybrid of IT and finance professionals. So you know, they, they were people who were tasked with doing some of the most boring work in the corporation, right? Like deep in the bowels, um, making sure that the company runs you know, effectively, they could do its corporate consolidation, produce its quarterly report. And what was interesting about that team was they had a culture that when I first met them, I was like, boy, these people are hopeless. They don't have any idea who their customer is. They don't think of the employees of the company as customers at all. They think that there's such a thing as requirements. This is one of those that drives me crazy uh, in most companies. But, you know, the laws of physics are required, but everything else is optional. So like going and interviewing your customers and just having them tell you what to do and then you produce a list of requirements and then everyone just has to do what the customers, it's just like that way of working is so uncreative and so ineffective. So anyway, so we, we worked together, you know, through a lean startup workshop and, and got them, you know, to think in a new way and to act in a more entrepreneurial way. Uh, but what was, so, so the outcome was really straightforward. We, we, you know, we changed their mindset and mentality from the old to the new, but have taught these workshops now for a number of years. If you don't make any structural changes, the new mindset will revert back to the old mindset very quickly upon people going back to their regular job because human beings are very impressionable and the context we work in matters a lot. And if you have a situation where you are, you know, being rewarded and punished for operating in the old way, you know, th this team had historically been organized around functional silos. So the IT people never talk to the finance people, never talk to the engineering people, never talk to HR there. You know, they're practically living on different planets. So if you allow that culture, that, that structure to continue, then the old culture will also continue. And so what was fascinating about this example in particular was that the team really proposed a radical new plan. I mean, literally from a plan that was going to take 36 months to be implemented to a plan where they're going to build their minimum viable product, that first experiment, and show it to actual employees of the company, you know, within 30 days. And they were going to do a new version of it every 90 days. And it was a much faster paced experiment. But it wouldn't have succeeded if they had not also paired that with some structural changes that they agreed to make. They took their 25-person committee down to a five-person dedicated cross-functional team uh, and, and a bunch of other structural things about how the team was rewarded and compensated that were within the company quite controversial, but they were necessary to produce this really amazing change in mindset. And do you think, um, you mentioned a little bit about the old and the new. Do you, think, do you think they can really coexist or do you think a company really needs to actually completely overhaul to succeed in terms of that change transformation piece? Well, maybe this is not what I'm supposed to say, you know, as a 
about someone trying to push change and innovation. But yeah, I think they necessarily coexist. I, I, I think transformation does not mean everything is new. And here's why. In, in software engineering, we have a concept called legacy code. If you spend five minutes around software engineers in a professional setting, you will hear people complaining about legacy code. Legacy code is the old code that you have inherited from the past. That is always, people always complaining about how bad it is. And, you know, the new code you write, of course, is brilliant, but the old code is frustrating and, and badly structured and, you know, needs to be redone. And the most common fallacy in software engineering is the idea that you can do a ground up rewrite, throw out all the legacy code and write all new code. And the reason it's a fallacy is that at every minute of every day, every engineer is busy writing legacy code. Now you say this to an engineer to their face, they will be furious at you because how dare you suggest that my beautiful new code is legacy, the legacy code is bad. But the point is that today's new code is tomorrow's old code. Where does the legacy code come from? And if you work in a job and on a product long enough, eventually you remember what you were doing when the legacy code was written. I remember I've done now multiple startups where I wrote the initial version of the software. And you know, three, four, five years later, people are like, what kind of idiot wrote this? <laughs> say, hi, hi, you work for me. I'm the idiot. Well, yeah, that's exactly right. Do you really think I was stupider back then than I am now? The point is we learn and grow and evolve. So whatever we were doing in the past, you know, is always going to seem inadequate mm -hmm. because of the knowledge we have uh, in the present. And of course, every person knows this intuitively about their own life because everyone always understands this expression, if I knew then what I knew now. Of course, if you already had the benefits of the learning, you wouldn't have made the mistake in the first place. But the mistake is how you got the learning. So what did you expect? So the same thing is true with culture of a company. You, you can't, you know, especially if you have more than five employees, certainly if you have 100 or 1,000 or 5,000 or I've worked with organizations that have hundreds of thousands of employees. So you can't change 100,000 employees at once. It's not possible. You have to do exponential growth just like you do in a hyper-growth startup. So you got to start with five and then 10 and then 20 and then 40. And then you got to build a program that can grow and spread the new thing throughout the company. But these things take long enough that by the time you have touched the 100,000th employee with the new idea, it will no longer be the new idea. Mm -hmm. You'll have had some newer, even better ideas in the meantime that you'll want to be shared. So like at the end of the book, I talk a lot about the importance of not just continuous innovation, but continuous transformation. Mm -hmm. that, that being able to do this re-education, re-centering, new mindset, that's actually a corporate capability that is an essential attribute of a modern company. And on that point of um, continuous uh, transformation, Naturally, no one's ever really finished, but how can companies measure that entrepreneurship management has become the way they work and know that they've delivered real change? Yeah, at the team level, you know, the individual team line leader level, it's quite easy because uh, if you get a report from a team, you can tell right away if they're being customer centric, if they feel empowered to run experiments or if they're just telling leaders what they want to hear. And I've just sat in millions of these review meetings over the years and you can, the difference is super stark. Now the issue for a lot of leaders is teams always tell the leader what the leader, they think the leader wants to hear. So, you know, if it's your own direct reports that you're trying to evaluate, there's a little of challenge in creating a safe space where they actually will tell you the truth about what's going on. But if you learn to ask the right questions, you can suss that out pretty quickly. The harder challenge is how do you uh, evaluate this rigorously at a division, you know, a portfolio level, 
or even at the whole enterprise level. So uh, there's, there's almost a whole chapter of the book dedicated to the technical question of how this measurement should be done. Uh, and so I won't, you know, try to, that, that really is not summarizable quickly, but there's a real, uh, there's a real method to this. Yeah, this is, you know, I, I, could, I guess I could, I, could, I could take a screenshot of some of the charts, but, but you know, uh, we call it in the Lean Startup Movement, we call it innovation accounting, yeah. which is the, the um, mathematical discipline of how we assess progress through leading indicators of future impact rather than trailing indicators of past impact. Uh, and just like you didn't learn, you know, cost accounting from a guy in an interview or you, know, you don't learn cost accounting from a tweet. It's a discipline. You have to study mm -hmm. it. Uh, the same thing is true here. But but I yeah, do think, finding that you know, yeah, you've got to get it right. And it, and the math, the accounting, the accountability, that those are all really important elements of the transformation. I think companies neglect that at their peril. Now, now in the book, you talked a lot about how multinational conglomerates to government agencies to software startups can all use the startup way. And it, yeah. it came out as a universal solution that every company of any shape or size can use. Is that definitely true? Or are there any examples you've seen where you've actually gone, it just doesn't fit for this type of company? Sure. I'll tell you one really surprising one. I, I won't name the company, but I was with a Fortune 500 company early, early on in my lean startup career. And they were you know, very keen to be early adopters of the lean startup idea. They were in a business where they're having massive external forces just destroy their whole business. So, I mean, it's like, it's very obvious that change is, is essential that they have, they're in a kind of a change or die situation. So I thought, well, that's a really good, you know, from a, like a Craig Christensen innovators dilemma kind of mm -hmm. situation. Like they, they, they've gotten it. Everyone understands that disruption is coming and they'd better, better suit up for that. So that's a good, attribute and the fact that they're willing to be early adopters that's a really good sign and when i went in and started working with teams and doing workshops and working with executives i was like very encouraged i was like wow everyone here is so open-minded they're willing to try anything new it's easy you just tell them to do something new and they were all over it there was almost no resistance i didn't get any of the usual questions i get about management systems and how you know how do we reconcile this with the hr policy none of that Everything was just, you say to do something, they're like, sure, let's just go do it. No resistance. And eventually I realized that part of the issue was that this is a very undisciplined company in the first place. It just was very unstructured. Everybody's doing their own thing. There's like 92 overlapping executive domains. It's just total chaos. And as a startup person, I was very comfortable in that environment. I thought, this is great. Chaos means there's nobody to tell the team no. So, so it'll be easy to get people to do lean startup. It's perfect. So I, you know, went in there and did some workshops, worked some teams. And my usual mo method in those days was I would do an initial intervention and then I would come back a few months later. And then we would, you know, kind of have to check in to see how it would go. We would do another set of workshops to refine strategy further. And so when I came back, I had a very strange experience. I would ask teams, how's it going? And they would all say it was going great. How's you doing? They started, oh, yeah, we're totally doing it. Exactly. And I would have them present what they, the progress they had made. And the progress would be hilariously non-lean. You didn't have a team they've been working on like for four months and they haven't shipped anything. Right. They're using jargon like minimum viable product, but they <laughs> have not actually shown a single thing to a single customer. And I had to be like, well, time out. What, why didn't you ship this minimum viable product to find out if customers like it? And they said, well, we were thinking about doing that, but uh, somebody else told us that we should wait and do more design. Or, you know, uh, we talked to this other expert, you know, this other executive told us that we should add some more features before we launch. And I was like, I know, but didn't we agree 
that, you know, and I explained the whole theory of lean startup again. Didn't we agree that the purpose of an MVP is learning and therefore excessive scope in the MVP is a form of waste and you know, just like all the theory of it. And it's so interesting. They'd be like, yeah, we totally agree, but we also agree with this other thing. It's totally contradictory. And what I realized happening is whoever was the most recent person in the room with this team, they would do what that person said. Right. So I go in the room, I tell them to do MVPs. They're like, yeah, that's a great idea. An executive walks in the next day and tells them to do scope, creep, bloat. And they're like, that's a great idea. And I'm pretty sure if you have a third different person had come in the third day and told them to do something yet. No. So it was like, there's no discipline for this company. So you can't get anything to stick. And I was really surprised. I thought that would be, you know, later, later I got to work with some very top-down hierarchical organizations, including, you know, actual military and intelligence agencies where, um, you know, talk about, I remember I was, I was working with, I was literally working with an intelligence agency and a bunch of the people from the agency came to one of my public speeches the same day that we had been doing a behind the firewall project together. I mean, you go work with these agencies, you have to, you know, you relinquish your phone and all metallic objects on the way in, right? Like it's, it's intensely secretive, but once you go behind the firewall, the organizational dynamics and the, you know, the spirit of the people and the desire for innovation and the mission orientation, like are all very familiar to anyone who spent time around startups or, or uh, transformation. And uh, one of the people came to one of my talks and of course I recognized them because I'd seen them earlier in the day, but you know, you're not supposed to say anything about, hi, hey, look at that, my friend from the intelligence agency, right? So I'm just trying to play it cool. So one of the people from the agency asked a question in public, a public question. My talk, hi, I work at a medium-sized nonprofit with a very hierarchical decision-making structure. <laughs> and I have a question. <laughs> it was like, oh my God, right? So yeah, if you have a, if you have a very hierarchical decision-making structure, that mm -hmm. seems like it's going to be an impediment to imposing new thinking. And it does, there is an initial inertia because you have to actually get the hierarchy on board with what you're trying to do. But the flip side of these very hierarchical, very disciplined organizations is that once they make a commitment, they can stick to it. So that, that's one that paradoxically surprised mm -hmm. me that is really necessary in order for companies to make the transformation happen. I don't work with companies that are super loose and goosey anymore. I just, I've learned the hard way that that doesn't work. It feels good at the beginning, but actually it doesn't actually stick after. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and a lot of those companies, they're very happy to hire business speakers to come in and be the dinner entertainment, you know, at an event. Right. And I was like, look, just hire a comedian. I'm not that, I'm not that funny. <laughs> it's just not worth it. And I, you know, it's a waste of my life. You know, like I'm, I'm a, I don't, I don't do this for fun. I, you know, I do because I, I believe in the impact. So, you know, it's just, it's a very funny thing. Like it's like something about the corporate, some corporate cultures that really, they like innovation theater. They like mm -hmm. to talk about it, pretend about it, but they're not serious. And Eric, I really, really appreciate you um, having given us your time. I wanted to also ask you if there are any, any other great books you'd recommend to our readers, um, and equally, whether or not you're planning on writing a new book yourself. Oh, well, I'll answer the second question first, which is right after you publish a book, you go through a certain trauma and pain of it that uh, I don't know if it's true for other authors, but, but after the last book, I swore I would never write another one, and then it kind of takes time for the amnesia to fade mm -hmm. in. So I'm still in that I'm still in that mode where it seems very daunting to do it again. But that being said, um, I do have an audio book coming out. Uh, either it'll be later this year, or maybe early next year. It's the release date. But some uh, some folks may remember I did a Kickstarter campaign for a one-time only one-print run experimental book called The Leader's Guide, 
that was kind of my MVP that I used to inform the, uh, the startup way. And so you can't buy that book now. We only did one print run of it. But uh, Audible has bought the audiobook rights. So we're going to produce kind of a novel uh, audiobook. Cool. It'll be it'll be very unusual for an audiobook because uh, Audible wants to do some innovation there. So that that will be probably my next publishing project. But yeah, that won't be out for a little while now. And what about um, other books you'd recommend? Mm. Um, you mentioned oh. the Innovators Dilemma. Oh, yeah, we're living. I mean, it's like a golden age for mm. management books and books about innovation. Um, I mentioned Bionic. David Kidder uh, Bionic has a new book that's about to come out that uh, you know I think is going to be really good. Um, uh, Beth Comstock, who was well, you know a key leader at GE when we were doing the transformation there, uh, has a book come out, coming out pretty soon. I'm telling you, books that have recently come out. Simon Sinek has a new book coming out that's going to be really very relevant to the issue of kind of long-term uh, long-term management systems that is very you know, very near and dear. Uh, and in terms of, of past books, yeah, you have uh, Steve Blank has a number of uh, excellent books you know on on the key pillar of the startup called customer development. Uh, for those that need help on the business model side, you have Alexander Osterwalder has a series of books uh, about uh, business model development. And then there's just a great, you know, there's a whole cadre of folks who have implementation or detailed books about specific aspects of um, uh, of building a lean startup, implementing these things. So there's books about lean startup as it relates to design. Uh, Ash Moria has a great book about the, the mechanics and metrics of um of lean startup as it relates to you know bootstrap companies and and to how you should think about the kind of innovation portfolio that you're trying to build. Um, there's books you know about the engineering side of what we call continuous deployment, continuous delivery. Um, so yeah, there's, there's um, trying to think. Uh, Jeff Gotthelf and um, Josh Eden have a book come, that came out last year called Sense and Respond. That's kind of about how to make a more agile. Organization. Anyway, I could do this all day. It's just like there's a there's a stunning. <laughs> Thank, you there. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, you know, and I'll just throw out one other book for for the engineers in the audience. Um, you know, you know, if you want to impress an engineer, mm -hmm. there's a very technical book that's quite hard to read, but is very rewarding if you if you do read it, and will give you, you know, days of ammunition for your battles with engineers and engineering departments. Called the Principles of Product Development Flow. Uh, from a guy named Don Reinertsen. If you if you if you have if your work is tangentially related to product development and you want to understand the deep, you know, why of how product development functions, I really recommend uh, that book too. Thank you so much, Eric. Um, we are mm -hmm. all out of time. Um, for anybody who has some follow-up questions, should they tweet at you? Yeah, yeah. I'm just at Eric Reese uh, on on Twitter, and uh, you know, my email address and everything is right on my website. So people are welcome to get in touch. Eric, thank you so much. Really, really do appreciate your time. Um, absolutely love the book. For anybody that's listening that hasn't yet purchased it, please do grab a copy. It's fantastic. Um, and we'll be back again soon with a new author and a new book. Thank you very much for your time. Outstanding. Thanks so much.